This is episode three of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with D'Amico Freeman. So yeah, I push myself to do that, like just to like, just to kind of like face my fear, like I, my irrational fear. And then like, just I see more and more of them every day, just kind of like based off those two like little techniques of just like taking a cold shower, facing resistance, basically. Uh, if it's not, maybe fear is like a strong word there, but like resistance is, a, is another healthy word, I think, to put in there to substitute back and forth with fear. Like just being resistant to doing something that like I know has some type of health benefit later on. Um, yeah, so that's why I did that, yeah. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. This episode with D'Amico is going to be part one of a two-part series because he has so much to say uh, and so many meaningful comments and stories and metaphors throughout our conversation that I really want people to take the time to listen to and digest. So uh, in order to keep these episodes a little bit shorter, I'm going to split them up into two. And so this will be part one. So in this episode, D'Amico and I talk about uh, some of his personal ways he challenges himself in his personal life, how that relates to his music therapy experience uh, as being a clinician, and also how he found music therapy and where the roots of that are in more traditional drumming styles and how that's informed his current uh, passion for functional percussion. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please join our group on Facebook and find us on social media to continue the conversation in any of those places. I really hope to build a community around these episodes and I look forward to hearing from you there. Thanks. Welcome to the podcast, Amigo. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation because I feel like every time I talk to you, you are a very thought-provoking person. <laughs> Thanks. So, so I appreciate our conversations. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. So before we get into all the music-related content, tell us about yourself outside of music. Outside of music Out, therapy. Outside of music? Yeah. Is that a thing? Does that ex- exist? Uh, I, no, because I, I live and breathe in rhythm and time of the universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm always in the, in, the, in the universe's musical orchestra. But like, on, I guess outside of that context, I think what you're saying, like things I enjoy like that aren't happening musically, 
Um, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love gardening. I'm actually like really big into that. Like just getting my hands in the dirt. I grew up in the South, North Carolina. My aunt, my uncle, my grandfather, they all have these huge farms with animals and they're all growing their own crops. It seems like, like I guess my parents' parents, like that generation was like really big on just like providing for yourself. Um, and it's probably due to the circumstances, it is due to the circumstances that they live through of like not having and like just ha having like make it on your own. And so there's that, that little bug is just like that seed actually has been like planting me for when I was a kid. It's like there were like pear trees and plum trees and pecan trees and peach and just like oh like everything like grapevines and just like okra. Just like there was just always something growing. And just being able just to like eat it, just like right there. And then I came up to the city, uh, maybe like ten years ago, the Philly from North Carolina. And I was living like in the city, like in Fishtown area. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Philadelphia, but Fishtown has like completely changed since I've been here. But when I was first here, there was like some little green lots, but it was still like city, city. And I remember like walking around like barefoot, and people were like, "Oh, what's wrong with you?" I was like, "I like feeling my feet on the on the on the ground, but there was no real ground." And so after a while, I just kind of got this kind of like, you know, kind of mad about being in the city. So I moved outside of the city to a little area called Mount Airy, Germantown. And I looked up and found this house. It's got a plot of land in the back that you can actually put a whole house on. Um, so it's just this plot of land. And I'm just growing whatever I can get, like my hands on okra. I got a fig tree, but I haven't put it in the ground yet. Um, I'm probably going to pot that because I want to take it with me. Um, and like when I get someplace that's like more secure, not a place I'm renting, but like I can like have a fig tree um, and always eat from it. So yeah, I love, I love like growing stuff from the land and just like working because there's so much metaphor and like, and meaning behind the earth. So outside of music, if I had to do something else, well, if I am doing something else that I think this is what I want to do with my life, it would definitely be related to like some type of like earth-based endeavor um, or acting. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> I could totally see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's from that's a, that's from high school. Like or acting. Like I love like Jim Carrey. Um, I was watching Mr. Bean last night with my son, and I was like, wow, like. I have embodied a lot of little things from Mr. Bean just kind of like unconsciously, like how he says so much without saying anything. It's awesome. So, yeah, I guess those are three things that that are kind of with me. Like if, if we like if we're walking, like people are kind of get this like sometimes like, oh, you're being weird. And I'm really just trying to like provoke a response and like just have like a random improv session with someone, but they're like really like grounded and like, no, this is reality. Like this is what we're doing. And you're pushing the bounds of, of normal interaction. I was like, yeah, no. Cause you don't have to be, we can be anything that we want to be right now. So why not just like goof off for a little while? And so, yeah. That was really good. Um, so Here's another one, another good question, kind of on that. So at conference, I saw you at uh, the New England conference this year, and you chose to take a cold swim in the ocean yeah. every morning. And I think this is along the same mindset. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you recently shaved your face. Right. Right? So are those, yeah. explain those. Um, 
so attachment, like, uh, so the face, I shaved my face this morning um, because I was in the mirror and I was kind of like, my sister's getting married in, in, the, in the week. And um, I was just kind of like thinking about that. But I was like shaving and I got up to the edge of my chin and I usually stop there and I go around and like come down and keep my beard there. And I was like, I'm afraid to shave off my beard. Like, I am literally afraid to shave my face. And it was an irrational fear. I felt like if I shaved my face and like I wouldn't be, I would, I would lose something, whatever that is, other than the hair off my face. And so I was just like, whatever. And I just, I just started shaving and then hoped that the shaver didn't die. Like, yeah, I feel overly attached to, uh, to my facial hair. It's like a form of my identity. And that's just not, this is, I'm so much more than this. This physical body. Um, the same thing happened. I used to have long, long locks that this was like past my hip. Like wow. I've been growing up for like 18 years, and um, I had this moment. My son had locks too, and he's seven. He turned seven. He was like, uh, "Dad, it's, I want a haircut. I'm seven now." And I was like, "No, you can't cut your hair." And he was like, "Why?" And I was like, "Because you know we don't." I had this lame parenting excuse of like as a way to control my child um and he wanted to cut his hair he knew what type of haircut he wanted everything so cut his hair and I sat with that for a little while I was like wow he looks different but he's the same that's that's interesting and I'd always say you know when I'm ready to cut my hair I have a dream and I had this dream that I cut my hair so I woke up next day and like really afraid to cut my hair because I was like, if I cut my hair, like, would people, like, stop valuing me? Like, would people stop seeing me as, like, someone who can talk about percussion? Will, like, will people with locks not respect me anymore? Like, will I, like, lose respect? Or I would lose something other than just the hair off my head. And I was like, I... So I cut it, and nothing happened. Um, it just started growing back. But then I also recognized that, like, I'm just not, like, I just don't like getting haircuts. So I just, I just kind of like my hair to grow. I, I love my hair. And so I had another moment just recently. I was like, I'm about to cut my hair again. And then I had a dream. And in my dream, I cut my hair and I was regretful. And in the dream when I cut my locks, I was not regretful. I was kind of like, oh, I was, I was satisfied. So I kind of work with that. Like I, my dream life is like a really big thing. Um, so swimming in the ocean kind of came from this like um, facing a fear of of the cold, of cold waters. So I've been taking cold showers as a way to kind of like wake myself up in the morning and kind of challenge myself to do something that I don't want to do. And that is uh, getting a shower. I mean, I listen to a lot of this like motivational podcasts and like Tim Ferriss, Tony Robbins, Les Brown, uh, um, uh, gosh, what's his name? E.T., Eric Thomas, like, so like, I like, uh, Jocko Willinks, um, David Goggins, Wim Hoff is this guy, they call him the Iceman, and, uh, he has this method where he's like immersing himself in ice baths as a way to like shock his, his, his autoimmune system to be active, like, to put his body, like, I, I don't have the right language to the the kind of the word up, but like it's it's healthy for us to like get in this state, and we're just not in this state in the modern life anymore. We're we're very comfortable, 
and there's nothing wrong with comfort, but like with comfort comes decay because you're not being challenged. And so I had every morning when I turn that cold water on, I am afraid to get in a cold shower because I know it's going to make me uncomfortable. And I have a timer. I set a timer for like a minute, 30 seconds. I I build it up or like I I pull it down. But it's always at least a minute um, of just like as cold as the water can get. But upstate when we were in New, uh, we're in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. The water wasn't cold enough in the in the <laughs> hotel room. It was not cold enough, and I knew it. Like I could feel. It. I was like, "This isn't cold. This is like, man, I must really be growing." So I was like, "I'm gonna go get in the ocean." <laughs> and it was cold for anyone who wasn't there. It was not a warm weekend. It was in what March? <laughs> yes, it was at the end of March. And from what I gather, that is like a very cold part of the area, right? Yeah. I mean, the last day of conference was warm, but in general, the mornings were not warm. (laughs) They were like 40 degrees. (laughs) And so the water is all, I don't know what the temperature of the water was. I'm glad I didn't check because it would have messed with my head even more. Um, So I got in there and it hurt. Like my whole body screamed. I've haven't, it's not like that when I get in my shower. Mm -hmm. But when I got in that ocean, my body screamed, like, we are going to die. Like, get out. Like, I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio like, Titanic. Like, you know, <laughs> don't let go. Oh, did you have a floaty? <laughs> no, I had, I just had myself. And, like, you were telling me, like, like get my head. Like, I did not stick my head in the water. No, your I, hair would have frozen. Right. I was kind of a little bit afraid because you don't have this hair fear. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's why I cut all my hair off was because I was tired of showering in the morning and it being frozen. So like when you walk out like icicle. Frozen, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, yeah, I pushed myself to do that, like just to like. Just to kind of like face my fear, like uh, my irrational fears. And then like. Just I see more and more of them every day, just kind of like based off those two like little techniques of this like taking a cold shower facing resistance basically uh if it's not maybe fear is like a strong word there but like resistance is a is another healthy word i think to put in there to substitute back and forth with fear like just being resistant to doing something that like i know has some type of health benefit later on yeah um yeah so that's why i did that yeah I think it's easy or easier to notice those things, those irrational fears and irrational thoughts in our clients and to challenge them, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And most people would probably think, well, taking a warm shower is just like a luxury of our life. You know, that's why, why wouldn't you do that? Or, you know, so to turn it on ourselves and to challenge ourselves every day actively And, you know, you didn't you're not complacent with the cold shower. You're not like, oh, that's enough. I don't need to challenge myself in another way. You found another way to challenge yourself. And I think that's really admirable. And that's why I wanted you to share that. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So for anyone listening, um, if, you know, those don't resonate with you, but if there's another way you can challenge yourself, totally. Just wake up early in the morning. Like, no kidding. Like, that's another tough one. Like, wake up at 530 and just be up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah be Sorry. coherent yeah that's tough yeah yeah got you all right so tell us about how you found music therapy and how you got to where you are now and what you're doing now uh i, I how i found music therapy yeah i mean it found me i, I guess i guess we kind of found each other we we're 
we're walking along a beach and uh, I, I seen I seen this <laughs> on a cold March morning in Massachusetts. <laughs> And I went uh, for a swim, and music therapy came and saved me. Right. I was like, what are you doing out there, man? Just get this drum. <laughs> um, so I, uh, it's a, it's a, it was an interesting journey. That's a great question. Um, and I think that everybody has, like, a different, like, approach to it. I met some people who were like, I knew I wanted to be a music therapist when I was in high school. And I was like, wow, like. I thought I wanted to be a sports agent when I was in high school and like, and like, I just, I just had no idea. So I really admire when people kind of like, know. um, I'm more of like a searcher seeker type. What is it? Um, so my high school, we had this huge marching band, like 120 people. It was like the largest marching band in the area. We like farmed for marching band, basically like everybody was in the marching band. Um, and then I went to college um, at Wingate University, woop woop. and the marching band. The marching band was like twelve people, and they went on the field with twelve people. And I looked at that and was like, "No, <laughs> like that's not cool." And so I didn't play any drums or percussion or any music really my freshman year, and I just got. I got depressed moving into my sophomore year and I didn't know what it was. I, and so I was like, well, I want to, I want to, I want to do something. I want to play drums. I want to learn drum set because I hadn't played drum set. I want to learn drum set. So I started taking drum lessons and I met this guy named Josh Walker. He was like a, you know, he was a drum line instructor for some schools in Charlotte and he would come down to Wingate and teach, teach lessons. But since I wasn't a percussion major, I didn't have to go through the whole like, learn this piece and play this piece in front of everyone he just kind of said what do you want to learn and I was like uh I don't know and so we just went through like drum kit timpani uh, marimba we went through uh conga we did like just he was just like showing me different styles of music he just kind of like gave me like an open book to just kind of like explore and that was great because there wasn't like this pressure of like you have to be but he was always like saying, like, if you want to improve this technique, this is what you do. And so I would go home and like, like do all these things. And um, so I kind of like fell into like this like new area of like, oh, it just isn't marching, man. Because I would like listen to like like the the cadets and like the cavaliers. I would like listen to their stuff. And, like, oh, that's all there is. It's like I didn't. I don't know. I mean, we had church music where like people were playing drums in church. So like, those are the only two areas I kind of seen drums percussion, like um, congas and djembe and like bongo and like all that stuff was like, I had no idea what that was. So that he kind of opened me up, opened that door up to me. And then when I graduated from college, I started working at this program called Eckert Youth Alternatives, um, which I think now a lot of them may have closed down. They closed around like 2008 when everything kind of went woof. I was living in the woods, so I didn't know that things were like imploding. I was completely kind of away from everything, working with kids in the wilderness, at-risk youth, and I would bring my drums out because I knew I couldn't bring a drum kit. This is around about the time when I locked my hair up, too, because I knew I couldn't have like this big afro walking in the woods. It would just not work, so I started my locks then. So I would bring out this, bring out my drums, and we would be playing drums, but I hadn't been playing that long, so I didn't really know 
what I was doing. I was just trying something, but I knew there was something missing. And my manager or my supervisor said, hey, look at this. And he gave me this article of a sister camp of all girls down in Florida that did something similar. They had this drum program and all their restraints went down. Like their restraint, let's say they had like, you know, something crazy, like 380 restraints a year. Like after they introduced their drumming program, their restraints went down to like, you know, 160 or something like that. Like it was it was like a significant decrease. And I was like, that, that's amazing. What is that? And so I think it's like this thing called music therapy. And so, and so I started like, just kind of like doing my little thing. And then when I left that camp, I, I was at home and trying to figure out what I was going to do back in my hometown of Whiteville, like uh, knowing I didn't want to stay there, but like knowing it was very grounding and safe to be there. So I was like looking around and like trying to learn piano. And then I found like about Appalachian State and they had a music therapy program. I was like, oh, I want to, maybe I go there for music therapy because I, now I kind of know, like, this is kind of like, I'm interested in, like, how to, like, make this work. And I know for music, because when I was a sophomore, like, it kind of, like, brought me back out of myself from this very depressed, like, it, like, opened me back up to a possibility of, like, experiences and things of that nature. Um, so I knew that there was something to music. And there's, like, this how, like, I think during that year, I started, like, uh, illegally downloading music like Shazam was like the thing like Bear Share like and so I was like listening to The Doors or Jimi Hendrix like my musical palette just really like got ripped open like so I was hearing all these different sounds like how it was affecting my mood and my and my body and like the way I was interacting with people and like how people would hear songs and like start like dancing like old old songs and so I found out about that Appalachian State, I did not have a background in music, just psychology from Wingate. So I couldn't get into App State or I didn't read well enough to know that I could get into App State because they also have an equivalency program. So I didn't like, I didn't read between the lines well enough. And I say that because when I came to Philly um, on the train one day, I said, you know what, I'm leaving home. I, I, I can't be here. Like some people are teaching West African drumming up in Philadelphia. I'm going to go up to Philadelphia and learn West African drumming. Little did I know, right in Winston-Salem, like, right two hours, three hours down the road, they were doing the same thing. <laughs> just like, I just wanted to get out of North Carolina, I guess. And so out I went, and I came and found about Temple, and they had a program, and I went and I auditioned. And I had my djembe, and, um, and the guy who was like, so it was like house and the percussion. So you did a percussion audition right, to be a part of the music therapy program as an undergrad. Like, I didn't know I was, like, doing an undergrad audition. I thought I was, like, <laughs> like. so I met with uh, Ken Agin, and he doesn't remember this story because I bring it up, like, every time I see him. It's, it's funny to me. It's, it's like he's sitting there and says, so you want to you be a music therapist? I was like, yeah, I want to be a music therapist. He's like, he's talking to me about it and, like, kind of kind of get me hip to the game. And he's like, well, can you play piano and guitar? And I was like, no, but I got this drum. I can play this djembe. And he's like, well... He was like, well, you need to learn piano. I was like, why do I need, like, why do I need anything else? Like, this is all I need is this drum. And he, he kind of chuckled a little bit. And when he, he, he leveled with me really honestly, and I really appreciate that. He was like, come in here, you're just going to end up getting another bachelor's degree. And it, and it really doesn't sound like that's what, that's a good idea for you. That's what, that's what you should do. Um, maybe you should check out the community college, build up your musical competencies, and then reapply for our equivalency program. I said, what an equivalency program? I 
I don't know where I missed that when I was like doing the whole thing, but so um, I went to the community college. I picked up the, the 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 foundations, the musical foundations that just weren't there, and I reapplied and, and came into Temple that way um, and got my master's. What three years ago, three four years ago now. Um, so yeah, that that's how it kind of came. That's the journey up in, in the temple. Um, of kind of coming into music therapy. And like right now, uh, I always had this like passion from adolescence because I was working, that's where it kind of started. Like I was working with kids at risk youth and then I did the program and uh, did a hospital setting, did a psych setting, did a hospice setting. Um, and then did intern in another psych setting. Now I'm working at that psych setting again um, up in the area, uh, behavioral hospital. But in between there, I worked a little bit in hospice. I worked a little bit in this, in assistant living older adults because my grandparents died when I was like high school, like, like very young. So I didn't get the chance to like do this type of like, like what is life? Like ask these questions. Like, you know, I was superficial as I'll get out. I was still superficial to some degree, um, as, as a high school kid. So I didn't get a chance to like ask these questions. So I found myself really drawn to older adults. And when I was working on the hospice, I remember reading Tuesdays with Maury in like college, like little books that kind of influenced me along the way. And like, I volunteered for a hospice experience when I was in college. And I remember thinking that's what I was going to get was like Tuesday with Maury. And like, I got like dying with Susan. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> what is this? And I, I remember writing a paper about it and like just kind of saying like, this was nothing like I thought it was going to be. Like it, it's really, sh it really shook me up because I hadn't contacted death like that. And the like, the not wanting to talk to just like, I'm, I'm just breathing baby. Like, and the breathe is a labor. So if you, I didn't understand just sitting with someone, how meaningful it was just to be there. I, I didn't get that. Um, so I did it again and was with hospice. And, you know, people who work in hospice are very, very special individuals. Like there's, there's, there's something about, um, there's something about their mindset and like the way they're able to connect. Um, but I, I, I found myself kind of wanting more, uh, more of an interaction personally, like, and I'm, I'm one to kind of say like, you have to know where you are, like personally, like, what populations kind of ring your bell because you don't want to like begrudgingly work with a population that like just because it's a paycheck like that's not why we're we're in the field and like I kind of found myself like being fulfilled but like still like wanting to have meet that need just to be honest that that personal need like not having grandparents so assistant living was like a home run like I love it I love learning the music I love like getting caught in like a two-hour conversation when I had a thousand notes to do and just like listening to someone like talk about it like and just like listening to the stories I love like combing through like the racial stuff that kind of went on there because like I'm this black guy with long locks with all these people who were born and like who like lived through like different areas of like dynamics of Jim Crow with like young kids and like what it was awesome, awesome, awesome work. And then I kind of got to the point where I was like, I want to kind of go back to to what kind of got me started, which was adolescence. Um, and the, the term at risk is kind of like getting a little blackballed a little bit because we're all at risk. 
to some to some degree but like I, i've been playing around with that label and like what it what we're actually saying when we say at risk um and i don't i don't think it's a appropriate it, it, it's not appropriate but it, it's not it's not trauma-informed the oh, the yeah. call someone the call someone at risk it, it's not really taking into account like okay when you say they're at risk you just kind of say oh your behavior has got to get is going to get you in trouble and so you need to change your behavior you wouldn't be they wouldn't be acting that way if like this whole system that they're they're growing up in, even the system that's supposed to be helping them, is sometimes crushing them under its gears. And like, so they're acting out and and like kind of understanding not as at risk, but like uh, people needing assistance, people seeking help. Like, there's there's like people on the road to recovery, people suffering from trauma, like like kids in a post traumatic living. And, a, and like acute stress, like are different ways of looking at that instead of just saying like, oh, you're at risk, at risk for what? Like not being successful, at risk for like not having a like nine to five job, at risk for what? Like going to jail, like you can be the way the world works today. You can be anything and like go to jail. You, just being born black in America puts you at risk. So like, like all of half of America, more than half of America is at risk. Being born poor and white, like at risk, like being born native at, like so like, it's not like it's kind of saying like you're at risk of the system like punishing you instead of like the system being at risk or like failing you. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I I don't just don't like the language. So I'm back in that population um, of, of teens and children, and it is beautifully hard and challenging, and I have forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you remember How, the like, highlights, right? Yeah, like it's like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, I forget about these things. But it's 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 there's definitely been some some really meaningful moments that I've had, and like, and, and just having having the chance to do the work, like being it's a blessing, like to be able to do the work, honestly, like to be able to be in someone's lives, like to do the work that we do, um, to work with people who care about people against a system that doesn't against like a huge machine that this kind of like its job the capitalist system is just kind of like i'm gonna consume people to create money and you know that's sad but that's just unfortunately that's that's america at, at the end of the day the dollar um, yeah yeah that was a really invigorating story. <laughs> all of that. All of that was awesome. And so now I'm a music therapist, board certified. <laughs> <laughs> Back with the youth. You're working with the youth again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's awesome. So I think sometimes it's easy. Sometimes our, our articles and our conversations, are, they remind me a little bit of like Instagram. They're kind of a highlight reel of all the wonderful things. Like the, this client did this and the group evolved this way and the dynamics are, are different. And um, you were talking about restraint. Restraints have gone down. So what is some, we'll, we'll talk about those, but what are some of the more difficult things just to put some reality back into it for anyone listening who's thinking, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing drumming. It's hard. Um, what can you say for those people to relate to in those hard moments? So, so the question is like, um, 
like are you are we acknowledging the hard moments like what to do when the hard moments happen yeah i guess or even some of the actual what actually happens in those situations so what do you experience i guess and what do you do well um this is where taking a cold shower works because (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can think on the spot right right because like boom because like you're actually facing resistance like your own resistance a lot of times like dr brooks darlene brooks out of temple is, is famous for saying, get out of your own way. You're, you're in your own way. Get out of the way. You're in the way. You're in the way. And it's that, like thinking of like, what if it doesn't, what if it, what if it, what if, what, I, I don't know. Like, cause you know, we plan out things like when we're learning, we plan out every, what if this happens? What if, so, but you have to throw that out the window when you get in a session and just kind of be like, all right, I got like a, a slew of things that could happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but the work is like sometimes kids don't want to play drums. They just want to be able to say no to something. They want to be able to exercise their power over somebody. And this whole morning, everybody been telling me what to do from getting out of bed to going to these groups. And now you're trying to tell me I have to play drums? I don't know how to play drums. That makes that hurts my ego strength. That don't make me feel good, mister. I'm not gonna play drums. I look like an idiot in front of all my peers who all seem to know what they're doing. Little they know. Those kids don't they're just trying it. But it sounds good because they're just trying it. And and so, yeah, that that is kind of like just kind of being open and letting them do like, I guess the first couple of times when I when I bring in percussion, I don't I don't put a lot of anything. I just say, here it is. And I just let it just happen. And it is it is not the rhythm that I'm used to. <laughs> like if, if like you go into the situation and this was like this is a, a part of my uh you know, my, my learning is like, I went into the situation, like coming from like traditional West African, like Afro-Cuban percussion, where like, I hear things like, oh, there's the clave, like there's this, like, here's the bell, this is this, this is, if you play this part, I play this part, you play that part, we're going to make this cool song, it's going to be great. And if you go in an acute setting, like, you need to do this, like, the very act of like staying in in a, in a structure, uh, a colleague and I were recently talking about this. He like blew my mind. Uh, Brian Muller here in Philadelphia. Like, if you think about this staying in a structure, and you think about a kid who has had no structure or has had no support, and you're telling them to like stay consistent, it's 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 not reflective of life. And so they are playing what life is, which is this. You know they're they're playing life, and you're not going to get that. Um, I froze up over here. I don't know if you're still going. There you go. Um, <laughs> like you're, you're, that's not what their life is, and so allowing them just to kind of like have these like the first you know for for a long time I spent like a like a month of of just like listening to the kids like you know two times a week just like go to town on the instruments and just being like. We don't use sticks on that. We don't use sticks on that. This is for your hands. Just doing little guiding things and just just putting little bits of structure in there just so I protected my instruments and like protected my investment. Like, you know, no, no, we don't use sticks on that. Just hands, just hands. And then just letting them do what they want. They're hitting them on the side. They're going there. And then there's always one kid's like, yo, let's make a rhythm. Everybody's like, yeah, like, and then they, so they, oh, that's trash, that's trash. Oh, then they, they, I said, you know, let's keep working on it. And then just being an encourager, you're like, all right, let's try this. Like, you know, which bass, which, which drum is the loudest in here? And like, oh, this one is, all right, so that drum, you know, it has to be the steadiest. Whatever we do, like, 
that drum has to be steady because if that drum's not steady, everybody hears that drum. And you know, which drum's the loudest? Oh, it's this bell. It's like, okay, well, let's keep, let's keep these two kind of steady and like making those like the containers, the low and like this high end and like letting everything else just kind of like live in between and like, and they're kind of like, they found their own, they found their own grounding. And like, initially I would be the one playing the bass drum, kind of like sneaking in grooves and like sneak grounding them in. Like the first session went on, then like, cause I want to play the bass drum and like giving it away. Like I want to do that. It's giving it away, like giving away, um, giving away my power as a therapist and empowering them to like, to take control of their group and recognizing that like, it's not really my group, it's our group. And I, just because I'm the person who comes in with the instruments, I'm the adult, I'm the, like, the person who's paid to like, do the work, I don't have ownership of them and that experience. Like We collectively have ownership. And I feel like a lot of times we get in trouble as clinicians when we try to own people's experience. Like, I know this is going to be good for you if you just like, if you just play this beat and you just let me play this beat, you're going to love it. It's going to be good for you. Like, so, and you just, I just met this kid like two weeks ago. Like this kid has been alive for 16 years and society has a way of saying that kids don't know anything. And like, we don't value our children, but children and the youth, teenagers, high school students across cultures have always been the one who bring on the change that is needed for the culture, right? You think about like the high school kids in China. It's like when young kids get mad, they don't care about adults. Like there's like, no, like I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And you get enough of them together like that and they make this critical mass. Adults bend. Yeah. Because we can't, we can't, we can't fight them. They have everyone from 18 and below going to stick with them because every adult has been kind of like doing the same thing, has seen as the oppressor. And, and so allowing kids to kind of like take control and have this sense of like ownership is, is, is beautiful. And that's what like I, I'm facilitating and co-creating with them. It's like you can make a beautiful thing together by working together, like by talking talking out these differences. Like, when you get mad at someone, like, instead of saying, yo, you're trash, like, just being that gentle, like, and it takes time. It it just takes time, but, like, being, like, keeping in mind those two, like, lower drums being, like, a foundation, and, like, sometimes you need to be that support. For my little kids, like, my little five-year-old, six-year-olds, like, their music experience, they're very, like, isolated. Like, they're not really listening to each other a lot, so I have a lot more structure in terms of, like, you know, drum circle facilitation type stuff that I'm doing with them to get them listening. And I bring in a little bit of that with the older kids, but like I'm more so like they got familiar enough for me. It's like, oh, let's play that Cardi B song. And so then they start like, you know, doing their thing with with uh, with the rhythm. And I, and I guess like for people who are who are getting into that, like first you need to get comfortable with the instrument yourself. You need to know its possibilities, its ranges, what it can do, what it sounds like when it's not in tune, what it sounds like when it is in tune, what it sounds like when it's getting choked off, what is too tight, and and know which sticks like make different sounds, and then just have this kind of like this working knowledge of like the repertoire of the instrument itself, like what rhythms sound good on this instrument because some rhythms sound great on a big bass drum, on a on a on a surdu. Um, from Brazil, in that same rhythm, 
doesn't sound great on like a on a, on a djembe um, from West Africa. They're just different. Like just four on the floor sounds great. One, two, three, four on a on a on a big old bass drum. But just doing that on a djembe is boring. It's not invigorating. And it's kind of knowing like like Native American cultures have like gathering drums that are are that play that rhythm, that old traditional, like this has been around for longer than music therapy has been around. Like when people are like, or actually like living and interacting with music as life, as a, as a therapy, as a healing practice, like these rhythms came out of that, like these patterns that came out of people experimenting for, I don't know how many years, but like they're a long time. And there's something to that science that they have figured out because you can find those rhythms. I got on a tangent. You can find those rhythms uh, across uh, across culture. So knowing some traditional rhythms, like knowing some traditional underpinnings of percussion, and then just allowing the group to kind of like guide you and not coming in um, when it's not appropriate, not coming in with all this strong structure when it's not needed. Because um, older kids are resistant, younger kids love it, um, but and in the middle, like the tweens, like they love it, hate it. They want it, but they don't want it. So you're you're always kind of like, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? Mm-hmm. I find that um, when I leave one of my adolescent groups, mm-hmm. and I'm upset or like I think in my head that that wasn't a good session, it's because I had an expectation. And yeah. yeah, and I was thinking, this is my plan. This is how it's going to go. And then it doesn't go that way. And the days, even when I have a plan, but I let it go and the session truly is not that great. I'm more <laughs> satisfied because I was able to just accept that whatever happened, happened. Um, yeah. So to be able to offer the instrument, it's super simple, right? Offer the instrument, have them say no and respect that is... Um, it's really important because, like you said, they don't they don't really get that in a lot of other places. Yeah. That opportunity to say no or no thank you if they're in a better mood. Yeah, if they're in a better mood, right? Yeah. If they're in a better mood, they don't say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's one way. Honestly, I um I did my internship in long term psych, and. One one of the most satisfying things was when you would offer, yeah, so and so, would you like to come to group today? And they would just cuss at you and tell you no in so many ways. And it was like, you know, you're being honest and authentic, and you gave me a straight answer. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. right, right. Okay, so you have this passion for functional percussion. I've seen you give your um your session on functional percussion at two conferences now. So where did that stem from? And take us through some of that. My, um, my passion for like functional percussion. Yeah. Um, well, like, so before I became a music therapist, before I even entered into grad school or, or tried to apply and decline the bachelor's degree, I came to Philly and I was studying uh, West African percussion with a few folks, uh, my good buddy Jay Beck, um, a good friend Manez Yehuda down in uh, Baltimore, um, Cache Ivy, who does a, a dance class here in West Philadelphia. I was going to her class. Um, there was just like lots of brothers who were here and sisters who were here like doing the dance, like doing like traditional dance and playing traditional rhythms. And like 
it was beautiful. Like you have like eight, ten different people like playing different rhythms and like for everybody to be playing something different and, not, and it fits like this. And if one person drops out, then like you you instantly like say, oh, something's not right. And you start looking around to see like where that person went. And they're, they're like probably like taking off their shirt or look like, you know, readjusting their seat. But you instantly recognize when somebody is like not there or when something's off because once it fits, it, it's going and it becomes this vehicle. And then like seeing the dance tied together with it, it's just, ah, oh, it's like, it's, if you don't get a chance to experience that like in person, then like you're missing out. Like there's no there's no substitute to like not to to seeing that and watching it happening and feeling the energy come out of those instruments and like pour into those dancers and then the dancers like pour it back into the drummer or then when someone starts singing in that context and like someone starts playing like a little middle like the energy in it is just like you get charged up and you're just you're playing for like it's not like a 10 minute thing like you're playing for like an hour plus and sometimes it's like so all this breathing this all this stuff gets locked in and then like just working on like how do i get the drum to make that sound like when you hear like a master play like how do you do that like how do i get this drum can make that sound Okay, I'm I'm definitely. It's like hearing someone play really good guitar, and like you you just have like your block chords, and then like you hear someone like you know BB King playing like, what? Ah, oh, I still have so far to go. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so there's, okay, so there's this dichotomy that's kind of sits with so it's kind of accepting where you are, knowing that even that person is still growing and still hasn't arrived. And will continue growing. And the only reason why they're there and you're not is because they have the they they put in the time. And that's the that's really the only major difference with any of us is just like people put in the time and the effort. And when you put in the time and the effort, you get this. You get this result. Um, if you if you've never rode a bike and you try to get on the bike the first day, you're gonna fall a whole bunch. And if you keep doing it and you keep doing it, you get really good at riding a bike. Like there's this funny quote where like uh, Les Brown is like, you know, how long before you tell a baby that they're not going to be able to walk? You know, or it might be like, you know, it might be Tony Robbins. Like when, when you just tell a baby you're not going to walk, right? You never, you always believe that your child's going to walk. And because this is part of the process. And the only reason why I'm doing this so well right now and I fall down and trip over myself sometimes. It's because I've been doing it for a long time. So when I think about functional percussion, I was in that very green and around people who have been doing it for a long time. And they were just like, come on, like, just keep showing up. Try this, try this. Uh, go practice this rhythm. Like, your tones aren't strong enough. They were just really direct with me. Like, I can't hear you whenever the music starts going. Like, you need to be a little bit more firm. Tune your drum. Tune your drum up. Your drum's not in tune. All right, let's make sure your drum's in tune. Your drum gets swallowed up. It's not in tune. And I just kept showing up, and it just kept mentoring me and guiding me. And so when I became a music therapist, I was I had I had got so much like inner peace from from a drum. I was like reading books like The Drummer's Path um, by uh, Sulu Greg Wilson, um, uh, Of Water and the Spirit by Mali Doma Somme. 
um, just like these, uh, the Healing Drum by Yaya Diallo. Um, these these books are like really instrumental in like my view of like how percussion um, worked, how the drum worked as like a healing device. Um, knowing the Native American traditions and a buffalo drum and like how like the shaman like you know was healing people with with music like bringing wellness into their life and so I was like thinking I was gonna get that with music therapy I was just gonna get that knowledge and I did and I got a different type I got like a western application not like an eastern sense of like wholeness with medicine but like a western application of music and I'm grateful for it uh, but what I recognize is a lot of my colleagues, like for us to be using percussion all the doggone time across settings, um, we were not functional in percussion. Like not we were in guitar. We're not pushed and encouraged. Like uh, this isn't a this isn't a kin, but it's just like a, it's like my ability to play that drum was 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 a bonus. At best, what was important is can you play piano? Can you play guitar? And what we mean by that is can you play Western European, you know, folk music on these? Can you play country road? Can you play Beatles? Can you play, you know, I was a Rolling Stone? Can you play uh, Heard Through Grapevine? Can you do Stevie Wonder on the piano? Like, uh, can you do those things? Like, that's are you functional on those instruments? Not are you functional on percussion? Whereas you're going down the street and you've seen a piano sitting on the side of the street, the person who can play piano, they're going to sit down and play piano. A person might walk by and like hit a key and like keep walking. You know, they're, they're not going to sit down and try to figure it out. But if there's a drum, oh my gosh, everybody's a drummer. <laughs> Yeah, Everybody's like trying to play Wipeout, like just like doing the, the, the beat that they were just tapping in their car. It's like we will rock you. Like, doom, doom, ga, doom, doom, ga. Everyone is like, everyone's a drummer. We're walking in rhythm, we're talking in rhythm, we're breathing in rhythm, we're interacting in rhythm. We like everything is a rhythm. Everybody's a drummer. And so I got, I got kind of mad. I was like, no one's doing this. Like, no one. Is teaching functional percussion, and then so I started looking around, like uh, Bill Matney. Um, I got his book right here. Uh, shout out to Bill Matney. Tataku. Um, this is this is like the this is like the only one in his in his existence is, is Bill Matney's book um, on the use of percussion in music therapy. Like he basically goes through and kind of shows you know all the all these things. Uh, Kalani Das. Uh, and I had been in conversation about things uh, about percussion, and like, so I started looking around and saying, "Well, who's who's talking about this?" And like, there's there's like a handful of voices who are like out there and like really talking about it. Whereas everybody wants it, not just music therapists, but like everybody like wants wants the drum. And so I'm big on that that functional percussion because I think that like we do a disservice to our clients when we bring in drums and we don't know their potential. We don't know what they can do. It's like, it's like bringing in an untuned guitar. Yeah. Like if your client doesn't know guitar, then they're, they're not, they're not any of the wiser, but there's something that they know is like, uh, something ain't right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're feeling their, their, their truth radar is like, something ain't right. Or if your if your piano was out of tune, like it's like something ain't right. Like you know, you feel it, and 
I, I think that a lot of times clinicians we get we get caught in this trap. Drums are expensive; it becomes secondary. So we start buying kid drums to work with adults, and and in, and in that way we are on a deeper level. We're we're hindering their their full being. Like we're you know we're trapping them into like a a kid's way of like voicing their concerns as an adult, and like I mean. On, on their weird meta, like, a deep level, like, like maybe, like, a, an adult does need a kid's drum because they're kind of, like, lost into, like, you know, some trauma that happened there. And so, like, having that kid's drum, like, gives them, like, an avenue to kind of, like, tap into their inner child. Um, but to this kind of have that be, like, oh, this is my drum. It says Nino on the top, which means baby. Like, <laughs> like, it, it, like you know, it's kind of belittling. And so, like, kind of knowing, like, size dimensions and like the full function of the instrument I think does us a great service um, and does our clients a great service because we allow them to have the full effect of like what percussion is outside of egg shakers and you know loomy sticks um, which have their place Uh, they all have their place but kind of knowing that like Remo Remo's djembe isn't like the djembe, it is like a variation of a traditional instrument and knowing the traditional instrument and how to tune that tradition. It's not that hard. Like the first time you change guitar strings, you struggle with it. Now you can change guitar strings. Like you can tune your guitar. Like you now you can finger pick. Like everything is a process. And I feel like we're resistant to come back to the very beginning. Like we're resistant of like of what we don't know, we're fearful of like being exposed to like not knowing how to do something. And we forgot that like learning is, you know, learning is a, is a thing. It's like, that is life. It's like figuring out life is figuring out like what to do. I have this quote on my, on my board here. It's like, it's how you deal with your not knowing. It's how you deal with your not knowing what to do that counts. So you can not know what to do, but like how you deal with that, like not knowing what to do, that's what really counts. Like, I don't know how to do this. Okay, now what? Do you say, oh, my ego's hurt. I'm not gonna, you know. Uh. Or do you say, all right, let me let me call someone. Let me read a book. Let me watch a video. Let me let me just try it, and let me fail a whole. B- Failure is. It's like the thing that scares me the most. Like that's why I'm not on the other side and you're not talking. Like like I'm not <laughs> listening to you like right now because I'm afraid of failing. We all are afraid of failing. But like it's in failure that like we have everything around us right now. Everything around us is like a series of failures that it, at one point like it started clicking the light bulb. How many failures? The telephone, the airplane was taking people's lives and failures. <laughs> like everything is like failure, failure, failure to it becomes like functional. And like when we start being afraid of like of failing because our ego is like, oh, you're gonna die. Like everyone's gonna laugh at you. You're gonna be ridiculed. Like you'll be laughing stock of the every- like. Okay, yeah, but that's how you grow is through failure, painfully. That, that ties in well to the opening remarks about, you know, fear in your facial hair and everything. It all keeps coming back. 
<laughs> I that's think... my that's my thing. Like, like I just listen to a lot of I I have I take a lot of uh, mental medicine because people who know me like people who are really really close to me know that like man that guy beats himself the f up like. <laughs> I wish he would just stop beating himself up. Like I just, I, I'm hard on myself. Um, and because I'm afraid of failing, but in that sense, I kind of get in the way and I just end up not doing because I'm afraid of failing. And I feel like all of us kind of have that running with us. Some of us like say, I don't know what to do. I'm going to figure it out. Some of us say, I'm going to fail. I'm okay. Failing. It doesn't kill me. Like that cold shower doesn't kill me. Like me doing this thing and it didn't work. I'm not dead. Like, death isn't, a lion is not going to come out and say, oh, you failed on that paper? You didn't do a good job on that paper? Off with his head. Like, you know, we get really caught up on, like, what, we miss the, we miss the, uh, the process for the product. And the process is where we really actually get the product that we want. Yeah. And uh, I think it can be intimidating, especially to be out of school. Um, maybe you already have a master's degree or someone and to not know you didn't know all this or um, you, you go into so much more detail, obviously, at your conference presentations, but to not realize how much you don't know. You, you were talking about um, Baba Tumbe. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard that name. And everyone else in the room is saying, oh, yeah, definitely. You should know who that is. You should know, like, learn, listen, learn, all that kind of stuff. And it's scary to think I'm a professional. I'm supposed to be the expert. I'm bringing in these instruments and everyone else in the room knows this name and I don't. Yeah. Right. And that that's even more intimidating than even just saying, oh, I should learn this drum. But not only that, there's all of these other resources that are available that I also didn't know about. Yeah, the, getting into this is, is, it takes your wheels off. Yeah. Like, it, it's like hearing like someone do something really well and you thought you were doing really good. Then you hear someone like, you know, really do it. You're like, oh, damn. But that is, that is like, there's always, there's always more. There's, there's always more. There's always like, you know, the next, the next thing like there's we never get to this point of like and that's a trap in itself i mean yeah so once you start finding out like there's more that you didn't know it, it hurts it, it, it really hurts to like be like damn like i'm now i'm inadequate now like now i, I thought i was good now i suck or like i was struggling before but now i really really suck and then you get this thinking arrow that kind of like defeats your process. But like you showing up to learn is like, that's it. Oh, I don't know. So because I don't know, I'm going to go find out. And I found out and I recognized that I was right. I really didn't know. But that feeling is a, is a, is a, is a, is it is it dehabilitating? Dehabilit is that the word I want to say? Debilitating. Debilitating. I I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got you. I like got de- you. Debil- it's, it 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 shuts down everything. It makes you not want to do anything. Um, but then recognizing that, like, yeah, like it's a long, like, it just 
you're always going to run into something that you don't know. There's yeah. always going to be someone who's better than you. There's always going to be a new venture. There's always going to be be that. Like, yeah. But it's never too late to start. No. Right? Yeah. No. Wasn't that a great episode? I'm sorry to cut the conversation short here, but the next half of the conversation will be available in part two, um, which will be episode four of the podcast. I hope that you have some great takeaways for this week and are ready next week to hear more about the history of the drums and percussion instruments that we frequently use in our clinical practice, as well as why it is so important to know about the cultures we are interacting with. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you again in the next one. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. If you're interested in being on an episode or have someone in mind that we should interview, please let us know by emailing us at feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. Thanks again for tuning in.